0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I've come to the conclusion that most of us have a very small, narrow, perhaps skewed view of heaven we have uh, come to believe that heaven is predominantly about clouds and harps, and um, I guess floating around in some capacity. And the reality is, for many of us, heaven just doesn't seem like something real. It feels like something that, you know, is out there, we're happy about it, it's better than the alternative, but, you know, we're, 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 it doesn't quite grab us, right? And I, and I think that, you know, it's, it's to our detriment that we have come to that mindset. Because when you read the scriptures, you find that heaven is is so much bigger and so much wider, and so much deeper, and so much more than any of us could imagine. We, when we read the scriptures, we, we hear about a new heaven and a new earth. That is, this restored earth and this renewed earth, where heaven and earth come together. And the will of God is done perfectly. And every person who is there wants what God wants completely. And we are with him. I was thinking about that struggle we have about heaven recently when I was reading something, and they referenced a, a particular passage from uh, C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. It's the seventh in the last in the series of the of the Chronicles of Narnia. And and in, in that in that book, Lewis is talking about how the children who have been integral to the story from the beginning, are on their way to Aslan's country. And they are happy to be coming to Aslan's country, but at the same time, they are grieving and lamenting because Narnia is no more. Narnia, that place where they first encountered Aslan, that place where where their lives were turned upside down, that place where they began to understand things about life and about themselves that they never knew before. A transformational place was gone. And so even as they make their way to Aslan's country, they do it with heavy hearts. And in the midst of that journey, there is this conversation. Conversation. Those hills, said Lucy. The nice woody ones and and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence, they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with his forked head and there's the pass into Archenland and everything. And yet, yet they're not alike, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors. And they look further away than I remembered. And they're more... more. I don't know. More like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory. Suddenly, Farsight the eagle spread his wings and soared 30, 40 feet up into the air, circled around, and then alighted on the ground. And he said kings and queens we have all been blind we are only beginning to see where we are from up there i can see it all edensmuir beaver's dam the great river care Paravel, still shining on the edge of the eastern sea narnia is not dead this is narnia how can it be said peter Aslan told us older ones that we should never return to Narnia. And here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and, and we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said Lord, the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter. When Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof. He neighed and he cried, I have come home At last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all of my life. I just never knew it until now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked like this. I love Lewis's description. The colors, the bigness, the connectedness. And I think we need a new vision of the new heaven and the new earth. And I believe that's why Paul writes to the Colossians and says, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Because when you think about the things of earth, when you focus on the things of earth, you end up with a very narrow, skewed view of God and of ourselves. We always think about about the new heaven and the new earth and what that day will be, primarily about God, and we should. But there is also something we need to know and remember and see about us. And it struck me when we read the last chapter of Revelation, who we are. Listen to it once again. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. And his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there. No need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Did you hear that last part? The people of God will reign forever and ever. It's one of the most phenomenal promises in all of Scripture. Scripture that those who have given their allegiance to Jesus, those who yearn for Jesus and recognize their need for Jesus, those whose lives are submitted and surrendered to Jesus, have an inheritance of royalty. And I don't think we really believe that. I think we wrestle to believe that's true. We spend so much time rightly so, thinking about being humble and thinking about taking the back place that we don't hear where we're going to end. That the day is coming when we will receive this inheritance and we will be kings and queens. That was God's intent from the beginning. To the creation story. Genesis chapter 1 God creates all of the earth and then He creates human beings and He says to them, Fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply. And then He says, Govern it and reign over the birds and the fish and all the animals that scurry along the ground. We were created to be royalty, we were created to reign. And the day is coming when that inheritance will be ours. An inheritance, Paul says, that will not spoil or fade and will not will, cannot be taken away from us. It is the inheritance of those who've given their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Jesus hints at this. In, the, in his teachings, when he tells the, the parable about the master and the servants, and he leaves them with the talents, and he goes off and he comes back and he says to those who, who prove to him that he is important to them and that they're going to stand with him and they've given their allegiance to him, he says to them, "Well done, you're a good servant. You've been faithful to little things now I'm going give, give to you, allow you to govern over cities. That's your reward." Matthew says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this, this small amount. I'm going to give you many, many more responsibilities. Let's go celebrate together. Our inheritance is royal authority in the kingdom. And I'm convinced that the struggle we have with that is causing us to live not just then but now far different than what God intends for us. What usually ends up when we when we miss what God has for us, we end up living out of our fears and our insecurities. When we read Genesis chapter three, you could see the insecurity of human humanity could see it just evolving. Adam and Eve reject God. They rebel against God. And what happens? Now they feel shame. They run and hide. They start blaming each other. Insecurity. Why is it that that greed is such a temptation for us? Because something in us says, "If if I could just get more... I would be valuable. I'd have worth. Why is it the power is such, a, such an allure for us? Because something in us says, I, I, need, I need to be able to control things. I need to be able to rule over things. I need to have, be able to tell people what to do. I need to, I need to be the person everyone looks to and says, wow, they're important. Why? Because I don't feel important. Why is it that we hurt each other and mess up our relationships so much? Why are we so self-centered in our relationships? Because we keep trying to do things to make people see how lovable we are. But what we actually do is end up pushing them away. Because everything becomes about us. We spend our lives trying to prove to people we're important. We have value. We have worth. We have significance. We live in those insecurities you might be able to to say that the whole history of human of human beings from the from Genesis chapter 3 forward is just a history of people living out their insecurities and over and over again i, I mean i think you can make a case for everything that people do war and violence and all the ways in which we sin rooted in our insecurities something in us is missing, missing. something in us isn't right And so we go looking for it, however we can get it. And the troubling thing is that the church does the same thing. We live the same way with each other. Why is it Paul talks so much about unity? Because we're not. You see it in every single letter that Paul writes Division, disunity, fighting. Why? Because people are living in their insecurities instead of in the inheritance of who we are as royal children of God. Kings and queens. And our focus is lost. When you know that you are a child of God, when you begin to get a grasp of who we are and our inheritance in Christ, then the teachings of Jesus begin to make a lot more sense. Blessed are the poor in spirit instead of blessed are those who grasp for everything they can. Blessed are those who are merciful instead of those who take advantage of those struggling with life. That the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That you, you you need to come into the kingdom in the spirit of a little child. Quite frankly, none of that makes any sense. Unless it's in the context of who we are and our royal inheritance that God has promised us. When you know that we are children of God, you can give yourself away. You can serve. You can love and not worrying about whether we're going to be loved back or not. We just love. And we surrender and we sacrifice. And we look, quite frankly, like Jesus. It has fascinated me for years that when John introduces the dialogue and the story of of the upper room in the gospel of John. When he introduces that, he says, Jesus, knowing that he had come from God and was returning to God, takes a towel and a basin and gets down his hands and knees and washes the stinking, dirty feet of his disciples. How can he do that? Because he knows who he is. He knows that he is the child of his Father, and he is secure in that. And when you know that, you can do the unimaginable. I find it fascinating how often suffering and rewards are connected in Paul's writings, in the Scriptures. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes to them about if we, if we die with him, we're going to live with him. If we endure hardship, we will reign with him. He says to the Philippians, for you've not been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for Christ. And he writes to the church at Rome. And he says that, that we are heirs of Christ. We are children of God. And as heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, we will have that provided. We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, I don't think Paul is creating a formula here. I don't think Paul is saying, all right, if you suffer, then you get the rewards. I think what he's saying is, once you understand who you are and what God has promised you, There is an inner sense of freedom to give yourself away. There's an inner sense of freedom to give up your life, to suffer with those who suffer, to weep with those who weep, and to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because life becomes far less about us and more about others. I think this is the motivation for evangelism. That we share the truth of Jesus without worrying of how people will respond to us. This is, I think, the heart of justice. That we get involved in the pains and the agony and the hurt and, and the difficulties of our world. And we can give ourselves away in serving others. And caring for others and thinking about others. Because we aren't trying to prove we're valuable. We know we're valuable to the King. I'm, it seems to me, because I've walked through my life, that the people, when I've struggled with arrogance, when other people I know struggle with arrogance, it's not because we think too highly of ourselves. It's think because we think too little of ourselves. And we're trying to prove to people we are better than we think we are. But the truth of the kingdom is that we are Royalty, And we need to embrace that and live our lives out of that truth. It's a glorious, glorious truth. You know, this is a, a day when we celebrate mothers. And it, it may be for you a, a wonderful day. It, it brings to your mind wonderful memories. You have family relationships are positive. Maybe it's the opposite of that for you maybe your thoughts about about your mother or your family are not positive maybe this day brings to you pain and grief maybe it's an agonizing day it's a day when we remember that even in the best of families they're not perfect and this is a day when when again as we give thanks for our families we're reminded families are messy and being and doing family right is hard and it's no different in the church it's hard to be the family of God. It's difficult to be brothers and sisters. It's hard to act like brothers and sisters, though sometimes we act like brothers and sisters, right? But God's calling us to something more than that. And how is it possible for us to have the kind of relationships that the Scripture calls us to? Because we know who we are in Christ. Christ. One of my favorite preachers is Fred Craddock. I I lamented when he died a few years ago. He was in his 90s. When he was still preaching, I would have walked miles to hear him preach. And I remember him telling a story one time about being with his wife on vacation in the Smoky Mountains. They were down there just trying to get away. They went into a restaurant, sat down. And uh, just wanting to relax and get away from people. And he noticed there was an older gentleman who was making the rounds through all the tables in this restaurant, talking to the patrons. And eventually he came to their table. And They could tell that he probably had, was probably the owner or one of the owners of the restaurant. It looked like he owned the place. And he came to their table and he said, so how are you folks today? Fine, thank you. You on vacation? Yeah. You having a good time? Yeah. I hope that continues. And he started to turn to walk away, and then he stopped, and he turned back, and he said, By the way, he looked at Fred Craddock, and he said, What do you do? He said, Well, I teach in a seminary. The guy's eyes lit up, and he said, Oh, you're a preacher. He said, I want to tell you a story. He pulled up a chair, and he sat down. And they're thinking, What just happened here? We're just here for a quiet dinner. He said, I was raised in these hills. And my mother was not married. And in those days, it's great shame. And the shame that fell on her fell on me. He said, the children at school had names for me. I ate alone. I hid at recess. I'd walk down the street and I would, I would see the stairs and the looks... People pointing, whispering. I knew what they were saying. There was a church, he said, down in those hills called Laurel Springs. A oh, country church. is that a preacher in that church? Big man, long black hair, big black beard. Or a Prince Albert coat. Crackly voice. He said he frightened me, but he also fascinated me. He said, I started I started showing up at church. And I get there late and I leave early because I don't want anyone talking to me. Because I expected somebody to say to me, hey, what's a boy like you doing in church? He said, one Sunday, one saying people kind of bunched up in the aisle. He said, I couldn't get out like I normally did. He said, I began to panic. And I began to get fearful. I'm thinking, what are these people going to say to me? Somebody's going to say something. And in the middle of that panic was rising, I felt a hand on my shoulder. And I slowly turned and I saw that big black coat and I looked up at that big black beard. And those piercing eyes. And I began to wilt. And the preacher turned me around and he said, I know you. I said, I know you. He said, you, you're a child of, and the man said, I thought to myself, oh man, what's he going to say? He looked him in the eye and he said, you're a child You're a child of God. I see a striking resemblance. And he said, he swatted me on the backside and he said, now go claim your inheritance. And the man sitting at that table said, I was born that day, I started living. Fred Craddock said to him, sir, what's your name? He said, Ben Hooper. He said, I thought to myself, Ben Hooper, Ben Hooper, that name sounded familiar. And all of a sudden it came to him. He said, I remembered my father telling me how the people of Tennessee had twice elected a governor by the name of Ben Hooper. And the Apostle Paul says to us. Think on heavenly things. Not earthly things. For you died to this life. And you have been made alive to life in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus your life appears. And reveals himself to the whole world. You and you And you and you and you and you will share in his glory. And the call of the gospel is to claim our inheritance. To live like we believe it. As children of God. Father, may that be so for us. Amen.